Christensen Sport Podcast with Graham Daniels. Hiya. Welcome to the Olympic Christians in Sport Podcast. Proper treat this is going to be. I'm discussing what it feels like to be at the Olympics, to compete, win or lose at the Olympics, what you go through, what the emotions are, what the stresses and pressures are. If you're somebody who really gets this level of sport, you will so get a feel of this conversation. I've got Adam Pengilly with me, uh, who is a double Olympian in Turin in 206, in the skeleton, slightly mad, uh, but I'll find out about that in a minute, uh, flying down the hill with nothing around you. That's Turin 2006 and in Vancouver in 2010. He was in the Worlds, of course, uh, as was Debbie Flood. But I'm focusing on the Olympics for both of them. Debbie was a reserve at Sydney in 2000, got silver at Athens, silver in Beijing, 0408, and was involved in 2012, as well as a bunch of Worlds. Uh, Both of you, welcome to the Olympic podcast. Here's the thing. I want to know the first time you knew you were going to the Olympics. What happened? How did it feel, Debbie? Oh, it was just amazing, really. We had an idea that we might be selected. We'd been doing well that season. But until you're actually told, uh, that reality doesn't become real, you know. And for us, the Olympics is the pinnacle of our sport. So every single year, you know, four years. In fact, at that point in my life, seven years aiming towards that one selection. As a team, it was just amazing in a quad. So the four of us is going to be our first games in a crew boat. And yeah, what, what an experience, what an opportunity. Let me just come back to you for a moment. In 2000 at Sydney, you actually, though you went, you were a reserve. Tell me about how that happened and and what that feels like when you want to be in the boat. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that was tough. My life plan was to row full time for two years, go to the Sydney Olympics and then get on with my life. So I'd put two years into my sport. I wanted to go to Sydney, my single hadn't made the cut I'd come second in the in the race off and yeah absolutely gutted I felt at the time that I was good enough that I should have um, been given an opportunity to to fight again for that slot I'd been injured but you know that's just sport at the end of the day if someone's faster than you then you know you don't get that spot but at the time it was it was really hard because that was my life plan two years go to the Olympics that was that was going to be my rowing career. Adam Pengilly, can you empathise with Debbie Flood's take? Uh, you entered two Olympics. Is it a straightforward selection process in your sport? Selection for me over the two games was really different. The first one, there wasn't as much internal competition with the British team. So I had to make sure I was ranked at a certain level to get qualified. And the first time when I achieved that a race early was just a real sense of relief because I knew that I should have done there, should have been there. Uh, and so when I qualified and, and I knew that within the selection policy, I was, I was, it was almost a done deal or should have been a done deal. It was a real sense of relief. The second time was very different. We had a really strong squad of athletes and I'd not had a an easy season I had an injury and had to get sent home for a stage of the season then came out again and had to race off against another guy who was actually ranked higher than me because he competed more we had three races it was very close He's, he was a good mate and in the end I, I edged him on all three and and got the nod but it, it was it was tough because I felt really bad for him and and had I been fit all of, we both would have been going uh, so because uh, you know, he, he, he qualified he qualified the second spot and then it was between me and him as to who was going to take that second spot. How do you handle that? It was tough. He he was really dignified. He shook my hand and said, well done, and then, and then shot off, as you'd expect. And I didn't know what to say. I was, in, in one sense, I was really pleased, but in the other sense, I was disappointed and, and uh, I guess, upset for him. And, and I was asking myself, is this, was it, did they make the right decision? 
I felt the fact that we'd had three races, but but I'd beaten him three times, although it was close. I, I'd earned the right in that sense, but he re- was ranked above me. And so it was a really difficult one to, to get my head around. And, you know, it wasn't my decision. So I was pleased to be going and off I went. Debbie, if you had to cope with the kind of thing we never see in the public eye, we just see the Olympian on their way. What's the closest pain you've had in these kind of conversations and selection issues with close colleagues, really? Yeah, well, you know, you train together day in, day out in the rowing team. You know, you spend a third of the year abroad, you know, sharing hotels and, you know, training through the ups and downs together. You know, you you know how difficult it is to be putting yourself through that each day, you know, through the training, through pushing yourself to your limits, you know, and you share that together. You share, you're sharing a journey together, really. And there are more, always more people who, you know, training that group that, and then they're going to make the team. So there's always going to be people who, who don't make it. And, you know, there's been many times in my marine career where, you know, it's been between, you know, one or two people, myself and someone else to get into the last place of a boat. And, you know, you've spent a whole year training with them. So it's tough because you, you've got to kind of have your own head on and, and hat on when you're racing and you're seat racing against them. But at the same time, you know, they're your friends. They are they're like rowing family in a way. And it's really tough, really tough place to be. You look back now, you're experienced people, you're retired from the international scene, both of you involved in different ways, but not racing anymore. As you look back on that now, would you say that your Christian faith, you both had Christian faith in those early stages of your own careers, did it inform the emotions? Did it have any bearing on the typical athletic emotions that one has? For me, yes. Uh, I think one of the, the challenges I found from a Christian perspective is that, especially around the time of the Olympics, you're so cocooned in your sporting environment and all of the staff, the coaches, performance director, this is the most important thing in the world. Now, for me, it wasn't, but it was easy to get drawn into that way of thinking. Uh, So it was important. It was something that was a dream to go to the games and to do well there and had been since I was a kid. So it was always right up there in terms of something I wanted to do, but it wasn't the most important thing for sure. Um, I kind of had to try and guard against myself getting drawn into that because when you when it's the most important thing you lose perspective on proper important things in life I do anyway so that was something that I also needed help with from from Christian mates how has it informed you Debbie uh, Adam mentions Christian mates in these situations you know with hindsight and experience for athletes it's it's so painful i mean i ask you these questions and and i see even flinches in your in your body language when we talk about some of these moments in retrospect how did being a follower of jesus inform these experiences for you yeah i mean for me throughout the extreme highs and lows of of sport it's been my stability been my kind of foundation really and there are many times where it's 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 a tough place to be the elite world of sport is can be a very selfish world you know that olympic motto higher faster stronger can become your existence and you know to a certain extent it must in order to be selected um, in order to be selected for the first place you know for your country and then also to go out and win medals but just as as adam was saying it can't become your identity it can't become the be all and end all because otherwise you know it breaks you and you see that all around you and for me i didn't want my rowing to shape and affect who i was you know who i am is a, a christian and you know i'm solid in being a child of God and in God's eyes you know I don't I don't change depending on whether I win medals or lose medals or whether I'm doing well or not doing well
well and trying to be constant in that you know in that security and in that standing was something for me that was a massive help um, and again giving you that perspective of life and not being tossed around by what people think of you whether it be the media whether it be the coaches whether it be other athletes and there are many times where you can be selfish in sport you know you can make someone else look bad or you kind of take advantage of someone being tired and you know not on good form and, and step up above that or you can make the choice to to help them out and to um, input into that situation and you know the bible teaches us to live with integrity with honor with love and you know for others around us as well and that's not always the thing that you see in sport let me take you into the olympic village whether it's the winters or the summer in your respective cases there's a whole host of expectations if you're a fresher if you're there for the first time i'm sure it's a very different experience to something that both of you had which was to repeat the experience Pick one of the Olympics that you were involved in uh, and tell me the experience that an, an athlete goes through pre-event once they're in the venue, once they're in the village. I think for me, it was two really different experiences. In Torino, I was so excited to be there first games and there'd been a lot of talk about Turin not being ready. You walked into the dining hall and the paint was drying. You could smell it very strongly. Uh, there was some scaffolding around where people were finishing things off and it was quite a bit of mud around as well. Then it snowed and everything looked pretty. So, But it was just so much to see and do and the atmosphere was just incredible of excitement of a place where people had dreamt and wanted to be from, for most of their lives and they'd made it. So there was a real, I guess, a, a euphoria and particularly around opening ceremony in the early part of the games. And that was similar in Vancouver. But then the day of the opening ceremony on the sliding track at the sliding centre in, in Whistler, Alusia died. That was incredibly difficult to deal with because as an athlete that slid down the track, you felt uh, with all the history that had gone on there, you felt that someone should be responsible and take responsibility and uh, you felt angry and you knew you were going to have to slide down there and there was a whole host of emotions. So that was a, a tough, tough one to to kind of get get your head around really so two really different experiences for me uh, Demi give me your most uh, interesting induction to an Olympic village <laughs> I think it was going into the dining hall really enough space for you know over 10,000 athletes to sit you literally have to say right I'm going to sit on that red chair there uh, to your mate otherwise you're not going to see them for an hour because you know the food from all over the world you know just it's just the most massive place but it's just such a humbling experience you know you go into the village and there's over 10,000 athletes dressed from head to foot in their country's colours you know each one of those athletes are the best in their sport in their country wow I mean what a place to be it's just uh, incredible really you know I remember the first time I went into the village and be with with a few of my teammates and we'd kind of be nudging each other saying oh look who it is look who it is and pointing people out you know that we in our eyes are kind of <laughs> famous and then and you kind of think to yourself well we're here too you know we're part of this you know we've we've worked to be here and have got this amazing privilege of representing our country so it is it is such a unique experience do you think also the there's real nationalism around there as well with so many flags and this is our patch and this is our patch and this is our patch but then everyone in terms of where they're living but then everyone's sitting together in the dining hall so it's a real this is where we are and but then when you you sit and chat to people in the dining hall and, and yeah. then lots of security and so there's all these hosts of new things happening yeah definitely you know the flags you've never seen such big flags in your life either you know these massive tower blocks and some of the flags just roll down the whole block we used to play guess the sport so you'd look around and kind of guess what sport you thought these athletes of all different shapes and sizes were and you know you go and sit next to them and you ask them you know <laughs> everyone just mingles in in the dining hall which is really cool yeah 
when you're in the situation, you assume when you're an outsider that this just fires you up and says, right, I'm top man, I'm top girl here, I'm going to fly. Do you lose your nerve? What happens in these situations? You've got enough Olympics between you. I think it's... Uh you go through all sorts of different emotions actually along the way you know you you might see some of your your competition or you might see various people around but it's easy to get distracted when I mean, you do keep having to you know need to pull yourself back into what you're there for it is an amazing experience it's an amazing atmosphere to step up into but you've also got to you know remember what you've trained for remember all the hard work that you've done and and go forward with that confidence so it's a case of letting that environment lift you rather than you know, suppress you and hinder you and, and make you anxious yeah, I think and also recognise that when you first arrive, there's often a, a couple of days where you can just enjoy the village and be there, maybe a bit of light training, but you haven't started official training or anything like that at your venue. So it's a case of the next couple of days, I'm going to enjoy this experience and then I'm focused back on the job in hand, which is the same as any other competition, similar sort of people that I'm up against at a World Cup or, or whatever. And so then it's a case of delivering on all the training that I've done and making sure all the preparation that I've done works out properly to keep my head in the right place. I found I was compartmentalizing a little bit so that it was this for a couple of days and then back to the job in hand. I interviewed Paris Edwards, the triathlete, world level triathlete uh, on one of these podcasts. I have to say it was an insight for me. She says, sometimes as you're about to start a race, she looks around and there's people in tears, shaking. And I said, why would that be? She says, because their sponsorship's at risk. They've got to win. This is their last chance for next year's sponsorship. I said, so how do you cope with it? She says, well, I just remember who made me, who gave me my gifts and what I'm there for. And I try and keep it in perspective. Do you have triggers, tricks, what do I call them, when you're ready to go in the racing? I, I can empathize with that quite a lot because for funding from UK sport it's very much on our performance and it has to be either an Olympic Games or a World Championships and the Olympics takes precedence so if you have a bad day on that one day every four years it has a real impact on funding which if that's how you pay for your rent and your food uh, perhaps for the food for your kids or or your wife whatever it, it's a lot of pressure to have to deal with but you have to kind of set that aside and for me one remembering the perspective of the lord that he had my back whatever he's always there for me and if if the funding went uh life might would be tougher um but but regardless he he's there for me and will look after me and then in terms of the competition it was very much a try and focus on the small things which i know help me compete well if i make sure i have a really good knee drive i push well if when I get onto the sled, I do a, a couple of deep breaths, I tend to relax more and drive more naturally. And if I focus on a particular corner, so it was very detailed and small bits that I felt I had some level of control over. And then, you know, then I would trust in the Lord and whatever the outcome would be, would be really. Yeah, I think for me, I approached racing with a real confident mindset. I just loved racing. So, and I felt free just to get out there and absolutely know that I could give it you know my all I always went out to racing thinking that I could win that was just me personally so then for me it was more being able to process actually what the result was what that outcome was I always went out thinking I'm gonna go out I'm gonna go and win this that was my kind of mental attitude and the love of racing coming out uh, in me knowing that we'd done all that preparation uh, so I guess my ups and downs are more in the preparation and in the training but once I sat on that start line I kind of just had a real confidence of loving racing wanting to get out there and 
yeah to to try and beat everyone but for me you know when we crossed the finish line whatever that result was that was when I needed to to process and for me again having perspective knowing that that medal you know wasn't going to define you know who I was in God's eyes and knowing that as long as I could give my all and use the gifts and abilities that I've been blessed with then you know that was all I can give that was enough for me to just race and whatever the result was you know in the end it didn't matter but as an athlete I'd put myself on that start line and, and I'd say to myself I'm going out to you know I'm going out to win I believe that I can get out and win then I would process the result afterwards so quite different to most to most athletes that I raced with I'd love to hear you talk us through in the quad Debbie uh, in this in this on the skeleton take us through that one minute before you start walk us through the mindset the routine that you would have had could you talk me through it Debbie one minute to go Oh, one minute to go that's that's a hard hard thing to talk through really even before that because you've got no crowds no crowds up at the start you know before you've boated the race you're at the finish line with your boat so you've got all the crowds you hear the atmosphere you kind of take it all in you're boating for your pre-race warm-up which is about half an hour so you've gone from massive crowds people getting their medals you know the anthems playing and out and you know your nerves you leave them on the bank and then you're going to, you know, you know what you're doing to warm up. You have a set warm up. Someone's responsibility. Um, when I was sat at two, that was my responsibility to call that warm up. So you've gone from massive atmosphere, massive crowd, and you've rode away up towards the start line, and it's absolute silence. You know, every every seven minutes, you'll hear a beep of a, of a race start and a bit of noise as they go past. But that's it. So that minute before you start, you know, you sat on the start line, you're already attached. Someone's holding your boat. You're lined up and all you can hear is the nervous breathing of athletes. And before the minute's gone, you already slapped the person in front of you and behind you and said, let's have a good one or whatever you said. So it's absolute silence in that minute. You're sat at front stops, you're in position because the two minute call over, they've already called over all the countries, including yours. You're sat at the start line, you're waiting, you're watching that red light. And, you know, in Athens, seven years for one six minute race. Beijing, 11 years for one six-minute race. You know, London, 15 years for one six-minute race. That's it. There's no more training. There's no more practice. One chance to get it right. See, I would argue that you have rounds. So if you do make a mistake in the early round, you've got a repechage as well. So you can mm. come back, perhaps. And for us, we have four runs of a minute each. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, if you make a mistake, it's... It's about not making mistakes and being solid all the way down, really, for us, rather than being exceptional, Mm -hmm. doing the basics really well. That last minute, unlike you, I was always really nervous. (laughs) I couldn't leave my nerves on the banks or in a pile of snow or on ice, (laughs) whatever. So it was about trying to control those, and I did that by, by praying for safety for everybody and that I'd perform well. And then I would go through like a race routine. I remember before Turin, I was off first, which was a real privilege. and meant I was leading the Olympics, obviously, for a couple of minutes. I remember being sat there on the edge. Normally, you've got a race order, so you know what's coming next. Now, we did have a start time, but it being Italy, things had changed around quite a bit. So I went out a bit early to make sure I didn't miss it. I remember being sat on the edge, hood, hood down, all my warm clothing on, covered up to the nines and hearing a mate in the crowd shout go on Adam and I was just trying to put it out of my mind and concentrate and then it was about controlling the nerves breathing deeply and thinking about those small things that helped me perform well so it was 
driving the knees, jumping on, being relaxed, just a few, few small technical details that weren't really heavily technical. And yeah, the first run went really well. Um, and then I was, uh, the second run didn't, unfortunately. I was in fourth, so I was just off a medal, about 200s. And uh, before the race was, for me, about controlling nerves and thinking about small details, which helped me to do that. Yeah, definitely agreeing the the small details, keeping it simple. When I'm sat there before I race, I'm just thinking about the first three strokes, getting them right. Because in a crew, you know, if if I do anything different or anything abnormal or decide to take it on on my my own, we're just going to fall apart. So being simple and just, you know, one stroke at a time, one stroke at a time all the way down. Really solid basics. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, you start thinking about the finish, then your mind's not on what you're doing at that point in time. Let me take you past the racing. The it's over, whether it's been a great success, relative success, relative failure. You're done, it's over, but you're still around, right? How does that work in the Olympic Village? What, what happens there? You finished your competition, what happens next? Well, for us, it's, um, it's a fantastic way around because the first week of the Games is the rowing. So we have the second week of the Games to go around, watch other sports, to kind of, you know, eat every food we can in the village hall, you know, <laughs> really uh, enjoy and embrace the village because you can't do that when you're racing. You have to be so focused. You have to be in a bubble. And often with the rowing, we're in a, in a different venue. So we're not directly in the village for that first week while we're racing. So it's a it's fantastic for us because it really means that we can, you know, absolutely enjoy and embrace everything that, um, you know, all the all the free stuff that athletes love. What do you mean <laughs> the, the free village? stuff? Uh, hey, come on. Oh, you can't uh, the Olympic village and get free months. What does that mean, the free stuff? Oh, well, it's just everything, isn't it? You just you're living there. You can eat what you want. Uh, you can just go and kind of help yourself from vending machines you know, everywhere you go. As much Coca-Cola as you could ever <laughs> possibly imagine. <laughs> you have to be in your kit. So, you know, if, if anyone took a photo of you and you were not in, you know, branded Team GB, you know, our sponsors for the Olympics kit, you are in trouble. So, you know, they have to give you enough kit to last for the two weeks. You get 40 kilos of kit. It is immense. It's like Christmas. But you, you're wandering around everywhere in your kit. So, you know, once you're finished, you know, you can stop and you can say hello people want pictures they want autographs and it's it's really amazing you know to be able to represent your country and to be kind of smiling with the kids and the the park and it's awesome and going to watch other sports as well so you're seeing you know your fellow teammates compete and you're able to cheer them on and be a part of the crowd and the atmosphere and you know you get as an athlete you get kind of free tickets into things so it's great it's absolutely great and and some good clothing (laughs) trades as well so gotta get some jamaican bobsleigh kit for me or you know whatever it might be yeah yeah uh, yeah kit swaps always good i bet you've got some stash at home then haven't you yeah too much um but I guess for me afterwards, it, it, it was similar for, for me in terms of our racing is the first week. So we did get to enjoy the village afterwards. On the flip side, I didn't enjoy it as much as I would have hoped just because I didn't perform well. Uh, the first the first games was just perhaps a bit of inexperience, but I, I was close, really close to a medal with one run to go and then uh, made a mess of one one corner. And I was gutted, really gutted, probably for about three months. And and I think at that stage, my perspective wasn't in the right place because it took me so long to get over it. And my my head was was all about I've let let myself down, friends down, country down. And I wasn't looking at at God and my my security being in him. 
and it didn't matter how I performed because if it did I'd be in trouble because I'm never perfect I never get things absolutely right and fortunately he he doesn't look at things in the way that we do so I struggled afterwards um, but when someone helped me to look at things in the right way it was really helpful and it's helped me grow as a Christian I think as well so it mixed really in terms of post-competition for me that's a remarkable thing to hear three months three months Adam just said does that resonate with you Debbie yeah I think it's you know if you haven't performed as you would have wanted to perform then it it is much more difficult to process you know for me in Beijing we were gutted because we hadn't won but we had had a great race so we were still able to really enjoy that second week and you know be extremely proud of ourselves as a crew that we that we had won a medal um even though we wanted to to go that one more for me it was still amazing to be there amazing to represent in my country and to bring home a medal in london it was slightly different because we had made the final uh we'd had injury that year but to make the final for us was a great achievement but we didn't perform as we'd wanted to in the final so we had a disappointing race and that was more difficult because as an athlete it does help if you can say well i gave it my all you know that was where we were as a crew that was how good we were whereas we couldn't say that in london we we knew we were we were better than that and we'd had a disappointing race so it was much more difficult but for me you know i i didn't want to not enjoy being a part of that games in a part of that second week and i think again coming back to having that perspective knowing that you know we have ups and downs we have disappointments along the way but you know what a blessing to be at the olympic games and to have that amazing privilege of representing um, my country it's not something that many people get a chance to do and you know i wanted to um you know honor god by by being happy in that environment and to show others that actually it wasn't going to kind of break me on the floor and that I was you know going to be broken because of it it is difficult but you know for me it's about recognizing what we have that is so much greater and in the light of eternity my medals will you know not come with me uh, when I pass away and Jesus is the most important thing that I need to know in my life and that for me I always wanted to be something that I drew my eyes back to now sometimes it would take longer and sometimes you could get back there quicker but it was it was never not there I think you hit the nail on the head with with about how you perform because if you if you delivered a performance you know that you can you can at least shrug your shoulders and say hey I I did a great I had a great day at the office I just wasn't good enough um, but when you don't it, it's really frustrating because Olympic opportunities don't come around very often sometimes just once in a lifetime but in the context of faith in Christ I think the thing that is was so important is as you say, in eternity's context, it just doesn't matter. And I realized that years later, when I did achieve the sort of things I wanted to in terms of medals at major champs, and the elation is incredible, mm-hmm. because you think, ah, oh, a lifetime's goal, it's been achieved, I feel amazing. But you feel amazing for about an hour and a half, I did anyway. And and then it's just like, well, is that all it is? And and so I can understand why people think I've got to do this again and again and again to try and have that excitement and that yeah that elation mm. that, that you can't uh, describe. But it it just doesn't last, and it's just not uh, it's not real contentment at all. Mm. I always used to try and 
kind of come back to saying to myself you know if you strip all the medals away all the successes and achievements that you think that you have within your sport you know what are you left with what are you left with that it's got to be something solid and for me I absolutely love being a part of my sport you know the friendships made the things and the journeys that you're on together you know my sport's been somewhere that you know, God's taught me so much um, you know molded and shaped me through my disappointments and through my highs and lows and through you know being a part of a team and working with others and supporting others and you know getting through frustrations as well and uh, for me you know that was always what I tried to come back to whether I'd won a medal or not or won you know done how I thought I wanted to do or not you know what is left underneath it because it can't all just be about the medals um, it's got to be about you know what would be left if you stripped all that away I totally agree God does mold us as you say through great times and bad times and yeah for me it was a real lesson of our performance doesn't doesn't make a difference in the light of eternity and in the light of how he looks at us and I guess have not having that burden was for me just a real weight lifted off my shoulders when I, I started to understand that more yeah good so all all the stuff all the banter all the eating drinking coke borrowing stash taking stash swapping stash uh, all that goes on but how Debbie Flood do you handle the after party the Olympic after party how do you walk a line of having great fun and honoring Christ in the way you go about your business without being a killjoy yeah it's definitely something that is is not always easy uh, to walk that right line you know you've got thousands and thousands of athletes just finished four years of of hard work and you know going out essentially into a party to let their hair down and you know along with that comes you know an intense environment an intense culture and it's easy to be drawn along with the the atmosphere of that and with the elation of finishing racing and of enjoying being around so many people who are just yeah finishing off their season if you like and it's a really difficult line to walk but for me you've got to know what your limits are you've got to know what your boundaries are you know essentially what is God's standards um you know what where are you placing yourself where are you vulnerable um so for me it was making sure that you know when I got to a certain point of being in a party and you know the drink was flowing that I needed to know when to stop when to step out when to stop drinking and there was still craziness going on around you but we're called to to stand firm in what we believe in and you know that sometimes stands out as being different and there are often times that I I got it wrong uh, I went too much the other the other side and you know but that's not that's not how God wants us to be in that environment and God's standards are for our protection and you know anything in excess is not is not good for you so you know it's difficult because you're carried along on the wave of that that kind of emotion and atmosphere and it's about being able to be out there with your friends being enjoying the experience absolutely loving being there representing your country but you know for me not just they're representing my country I'm there representing Christ and that's got to come first and foremost Adam it's fascinating uh, listening to you talk us through that three-month low what I didn't quite get from you in it is talk me how you came out of it in the end be specific with me how do you get out of that then I recognized not straight away but I recognized that the place where I was at was not healthy spiritually and I don't know if you remember but we spoke and you challenged me and you said, who's your audience? Who are you living for? And uh, and that kind of triggered something in my head to say, this isn't about me. It's, it's about God. And I think after that, it's been a lesson through my career. But I then tried to make sure I had accountability from friends and family who were Christians to ask me 
difficult questions that I didn't really enjoy answering, but to check that I was putting God first and that I wasn't getting wrapped up in skeleton and wrapped up in trying to win and wrapped up in performance and wrapped up in top five, top three, top whatever in this race. And so it was about, for me, being quite regimented and I got a bit better at it, at it as my career went on to be in contact with Christians, to spend time in prayer, reading the Bible, listening to sermons. And when I was in North America, to be able to go to churches when I could as well and try and build relationships with local Christians in Europe. That didn't work so well because of the language. Um, But in North America, it was much easier. So those were the things that I tried to do. And it was, yeah, it it wasn't the right approach. My my focus was too much on me it was on selfish selfish ambition and desire and rather than enjoying this amazing gift that god had given me of doing a sport that i loved hurtling down a mountain at 90 miles an hour is just so much fun as as long as you don't hit the wall too much but it's just a brilliant gift from god and i wasn't able to enjoy that gift because it had become too much of a focus for me rather than focusing on him that had given me that gift Adam Pengilly, Debbie Flood, different class. Absolutely great to have you on this Christians in Sport Olympic podcast special. By the way, before I disappear, if you are an athlete or a coach heading to Rio for the Olympics or Paralympics and you think we can support you in any possible way, give us a shout. Go to our website, christiansinsport.org.uk. We're there. We'll do whatever we can to help. Meanwhile, have a great summer. Enjoy Rio, and we'll be back in the autumn. See you then. All the best. 